You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of NCBA's Beltway Beef. I'm Hunter Ehrman, and today I'm joined by NCBA Vice President of Government Affairs, Ethan Lane, for an update on the election. We're just a few short weeks away from the midterm elections, so Ethan, what key races is NCBA watching? Well, with 435 House seats up for uh, up for a vote here in a few weeks, and, and uh, several dozen key Senate seats around the country, uh, it's hard to narrow it down to a couple key races. We're really looking at, at larger narratives that are shaping up. You know, coming into this election cycle, we had uh, sort of data on the side of Republicans to take back the House of Representatives. They have a very thin margin to cover to uh, to get to even in the House. Uh, and in a midterm like this, historically, we expect that party that's in the minority to make up that ground. Uh, we watched that cushion of seats erode a bit over the summer. We watched Republicans lose some ground in a couple of those races around the country. We're starting to see that kind of equalize now. We're starting to see that level out and maybe kind of get back to where we would expect it to be here in the closing weeks of the race. That's not necessarily unexpected. You know, we always kind of see a narrowing of these races around October, but uh, we're certainly looking at some of those key flips around the country that, that could be a really big deal for cattle producers. Uh, people like Barb Kirkmeyer in Colorado. Um, I, 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 there are a couple races up in the Pacific Northwest uh, that are that are, that are are kind of on our radar as well. Kurt Schrader lost his seat uh, to an extremely liberal I, I candidate named Jamie McLeod Skinner, uh, who, who has been a little less than completely forthcoming with where she's from. Uh, she's actually tried to leverage one of our members, Bob Skinner, uh, as kind of the family ranch, which if you talk to Bob, he'll tell you she, he's never met her or heard of her before. Um, and and there's, a, I, I, there's a woman named Chavez Dereemer who's running in that district who uh, is, is a really strong candidate and, and is, is putting up a good showing there. And we're seeing those kind of races in pockets all over the country of potential flips and those pickups for Republicans. Republicans. Um, so we, we, we're, we're expecting at this point, at the very least, for Republicans to have a cushion that's probably at least as big as Democrats have now and probably a little bigger than that going into the next Congress. Um, and that's going to bode well for a lot of our priorities uh, up in the next Congress. But really, the action comes down to the Senate. Uh, that's where the big money game is being played. We're seeing some really key races shape up in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, in Wisconsin, in Nevada, and to a lesser extent, Arizona, um, as, as far as those kind of decision points around the country. And what we've always kind of been watching in this cycle and is, is certainly holding true is uh, we're seeing a, a, a little bit different scenario in statewide races. So think governorships and Senate races than we are in those in those congressional districts. You tend to have a little bit more defined voter groups in those congressional districts. Um, and, and statewide races run more like national races, right? You kind of have big cities, you have rural areas, and you have that entire uh, electorate coming together. So the Pennsylvania race is the one that a lot of people have been focused on. You know, Dr. Oz running against John Fetterman. Um, that race is, is narrowing. Dr. Oz is making up some ground there. Fetterman has been a bit absentee on the on the, the, the campaign trail with some health problems. His policies are extremely liberal, trending towards socialist. Um, that's giving some people some pause. Um, Dr. Oz is by no means a perfect candidate either. Uh, if we probably had a little bit more, uh, you know, I don't know if polished is the right word, but better. <laughs> we had a different candidate in Pennsylvania that didn't have as many kind of challenges as of his own. Um, that might be a very different race than, than it has shaped up to be. You know, similarly in Georgia, we're watching Ralph Warnock, the, the, the incumbent, first term incumbent senator, uh, taking on uh, Herschel Walker. Uh, you know, he, he has had his own challenges. Um, you know, opposition research, as you know from your campaign days, Hunter, uh, plays a big role 
in these races. You know, the, the big surprises in those opposition research reports tend to come out here in the closing weeks uh, of, the, of the campaign. I doubt we're done there. I'm sure we will hear more sort of shocking, you know, exposés and details from some of these races. But, um, you know, those are a couple that, that really are kind of on the knife's edge of breaking one way or another. So, Ethan, how will the election impact the makeup of the House and Senate Agriculture Committee? Well, that's a good question. You know, we're expecting to still have extremely narrow margins regardless, right? Um, and, and that being the case, you end up having uh, uh, pretty balanced committees as far as R's and D's. Going into a farm bill, you're going to see the Democrats sort of retool. We've already seen that a little bit with members of the Ag Committee, who they're putting into those positions. Um, typically, they'll start to load in members from more urban districts that are focused more on, on food assistance program, SNAP, things like that. Uh, that's going to be their priority going into that farm bill process. Um, we've already seen that a little bit with people like Marcy Captor from Toledo, Ohio, returning to the to the Ag Committee. Um, that's not typically a, a, a district you would expect to be much of an Ag district. I've run a campaign in that district. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of farmers and ranchers there. Um, so for her to be on the Ag Committee, she's there for one reason. Um, so I think we can expect to see more of that regardless of what the, the margin looks like. But, you know, remember, control... Even even when you have a narrow margin, it really comes down to to the agenda. You know what what really is allowed to move forward. G.T. Thompson, uh, the, as as the new incoming presumptive chair of the House Agriculture Committee, should Republicans take control of the House, uh, is a strong advocate for the cattle industry, strong advocate for agriculture. Um, you know that alone is a massive game changer, just empowering him in that position. There are also a lot of farm state members, new members, new candidates that are looking good in their races to, to come to Washington as new members of that freshman class. That's gonna bring some, some new helpful voices that understand agriculture, uh, that wanna be helpful, um, and, and that's always a good thing. You know, it also leads to what we always see, which is a log jam of new members wanting to get on those committees, right? If you're from an ag district, by gosh, you wanna to come to Washington and get on the ag committee. And what we try to remind people is, we do business before almost every committee in Washington. So uh, we need help everywhere as well. So, you know, we don't want those members to, to think that it's ag committee or bust, right? The natural resources committee is critically important for us. The transportation infrastructure committee is critically important for us. Energy and commerce, ways and means. There are lots of ways for folks to help us and support the industry up on Capitol Hill other than just the ag committee. So, um, you know, we'll be watching all of those races and hoping that the steering committee uh, makes some good choices in populating those committees with folks that are willing to get some stuff done. So, Ethan, what legislative issues do you expect Congress to focus on in this lame duck period in between the election and the end of this year? Well, you know, less is more, right? I mean, we, we don't really want to see a bunch of activity and, and, and last minute panic legislating in a lame duck session. Um, you know, people's motives are different. If the Democrats lose uh, bigger than they're expecting to, you're going to see some desperation, some Hail Marys. Gosh, this is our last chance to do something, you know, for, for the next couple of years. Um, if Republicans do get that majority they're looking for, you're going to see them really apply the brakes because they're not going to want to do much of anything before they have uh, control and, and can run those processes the way that they want to. So that's going to manifest most specifically in things like appropriations. You know, our next fiscal deadline uh, to fund the government is December 16th. That could either be a continuing resolution again into next spring, March or something like that, or it could be a full omnibus package that funds the government through next, next September. How this election plays out is going to be a big factor in what that package looks like. You know, Republicans are not going to want to do a full omnibus package through September if they're going to have control, you know, in just a few short weeks. Um, if it's narrower than that, maybe everybody, you know, feels like they want to get an omnibus done uh, so they're not fighting about it more into the, into the spring. So, you know, what happens in the next three weeks has major 
consequences for what that lame duck looks like. We, we do expect um, some of the proponents of bills like Fisher-Grassley and things like that to, to, to once again try to run at those, those pieces of legislation. That's going to also be uh, in the mix with things like, uh, you know, the SAFE Act that we've already, you know, worked to, to beat back once this, this Congress. That's the bill that would pro- prohibit transfer of horses anywhere in the country um, with intent for harvesting or processing. Um, that's a big deal for, for, for horse country and, and kind of bodes poorly for everything in our agricultural space, animal rights community is aggressively supporting that, um, just like they are supporting some of these other things that keep popping up. So, you know, anything's possible in a lame duck, and, and our team here is going to have to be on their A game, looking out for any of these things that might pop up last minute uh, that we're going to need to engage on to make sure it doesn't get across the finish line. So, speaking of those animal rights activists, what role have these anti-ag groups played in the election? A huge one, bigger than we normally would expect. Um, Animal rights activists are interesting because, you know, they have no problem selling their agenda or pushing their agenda to non-traditional allies. They're looking for allies in the Republican Party. They've spent a tremendous amount of political dollars this cycle on Republicans, um, tens of thousands of dollars uh, to Republican members of Congress across the country as far as PAC contributions, people you wouldn't expect. A lot of those members didn't really understand who they're taking money from, you know, these big PAC events that we go to here in Washington, people show up, they hand a check, uh, whether it's, um, you know, a group like Animal Wellness Action or the Humane Society uh, Legislative Action Fund, um, or, you know, individual donors like Carol Baskin, who's famous from the Tiger King show at the beginning of COVID. She's a huge donor on animal rights issues and writes big checks to Republican members of Congress. Um, This is an issue we've been really engaged in. Um, We've tried to educate. We're going to continue to educate. We're not alone on this. The sportsman's community, um, the firearms community, um, a lot of the extractive use community as well. All of them have a lot of concerns with, with these animal rights groups uh, engaging in this space. You know, they, they tell these members that this is about puppies and kittens, um, you know, and, and big cats in Africa and stuff like that. It's not. It's about shutting down agriculture. It's about shutting down hunting. It's about shutting down all of our kind of way of life in rural communities across the country. Um, and we need to make sure that our members across the country understand that this is not about warm and fuzzy, uh, you know, puppies and kittens. This is, this is, these are bad people with a bad agenda. So, Ethan, how is election going to impact NCBA's policy priorities, especially as we go into a farm bill year? So that's going to be a really interesting narrative to watch play out. I was here in 2010 when the Tea Party wave came in. That was marked by a, a high degree of fiscal conservatism. I think we're going to see very similar dynamics coming into this next Congress. Um, we've had a lot of extraordinary government spending beyond normal budgeting over the last couple of years since the beginning of COVID. Trillions of dollars in additional spending. You know, the, 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 the federal deficit reflects that. You're going to see a lot of these incoming members of Congress really keyed in on that and really focused on where money's going out the door, where we're spending too much, and where they can tighten the belt. The farm bill is going to be close to a trillion dollar package at this point. That is going to get a lot of scrutiny. I think it's really important that we understand just what a big sales job a a full farm bill will be with this new Congress. We've heard from a lot of incoming freshman members, Republicans, saying, I have no interest in voting for a big package like this, even if they're from farm states. So that kind of paints the picture of of what we have ahead of us. And remember, everything in that farm bill costs more than it did the last time we did it. Inflation, as everyone listening to this podcast knows, is front and center right now. And that 
that goes for food prices, that goes for conservation program costs, that goes for disaster assistance program costs, you name it across the board, everything costs more. Um, so not only is this a big ticket anyway, it's an even bigger ticket because of that. Uh, that's going to prove to be a really contentious fight, I think, throughout the year. Uh, you know, GT Thompson has said he, he wants to aggressively move into that space in January and keep that going through the year and hopefully have a bill to vote on by September. Uh, we will do everything we can to help him with that, but I think that is an extremely remote possibility that we're voting on a farm bill, uh, you know, in a successful way by, by next September. So, Ethan, as these new members come into Congress, what is NCBA's role in bringing them up to speed on all the issues facing the cattle industry? Well, first and foremost, it is that that initial education process, helping them to understand just how complex our industry is, how many different areas we're involved in, right? It's not, as we said earlier, just the Ag Committee. It's not just cattle on grass. That's where we start. But our producers need a lot more than that. Our producers are interested in the tax environment. Our producers are interested in the conservation environment. Our producers are interested in risk management. Our producers are interested in transportation. Our producers are interested in trade. Our producers are interested in food safety and processing capacity because we need a healthy packing sector to keep our animals moving through the system. So. We have a lot of different points. We want to get on these new members' radars. We want to make sure that we're educating their staff. We want to make sure that they understand um, just what a resource we can be at NCBA with the team we have here for them as they move through the year. And that's kind of where we start the process is, is making sure they know we're here, here's the information we have, here's who we represent, and, and helping them understand that grassroots connection. Well, Ethan, thanks so much for joining me today. You bet. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, including SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.